Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist, Jay Carson. Though Jay's off this week, he's uh, celebrating Easter with his family. Uh, Myself, being a childless heathen, I uh, have my Easter Sunday morning free. So while the state of my soul may be in doubt, I at least have that free Sunday morning thing going for me. So while I am doing the podcast solo, for better or worse, most likely worse, this week, I will do my best to try to present what I think Jay's views might be on these issues. And I think I have some insight into this. I've known Jay for very many years, uh, too many uh, to think about actually right now. And uh, also as a former recovering conservative myself, I think I might have some insight into the inner workings of the conservative mind. So we'll see. In this week's episode, I look at the tentative agreement between the United States and Iran. Is it a good deal, or are we likely to be burned by the country that still calls us the Great Satan? Why Indiana lawmakers backed away from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that Governor Mike Pence signed into law last week, and what it says about the modern Republican Party. The indictment of Senator Robert Menendez on corruption charges. It's more than just one very bad apple. I'll try to explain how a broken campaign finance system made this possible and why it won't be fixed anytime soon. And finally, McDonald's plan to give its workers raises. Is this an example of a big multinational company doing the right thing? I bet you can guess the answer to that one. Our lead story this week is Iran, or as I often call it, Iran. My wife always tells me that I'm pronouncing it incorrectly because it's not Iran as in, you know, Iran, Iran so far away. It's Iran. And so I will do my best to use the correct pronunciation as I talk about our lead story this week. So this week, U.S. and Iranian negotiators agree to a framework that cuts the number of centrifuges that Iran uses to, we hope not, uh, process fuel for nuclear weapons. Uh, And they're cutting those by two-thirds. They're reducing their stockpile of uranium from 10,000 kilograms to 300 kilograms, uh, and they're doing that for 15 years. And the the thousands of centrifuges they currently have centrifuging away will be put into storage. So why would Iran be willing to do this? Well, part of the deal is that they will get relief from a broad range of international sanctions that have crippled their economy. Uh, Since these sanctions were in place when uh, Iran's nuclear program became public in 2002, uh, their economy has really gone down considerably, uh, particularly uh, because of the loss of oil revenue and the lack of ability for them to use international financial markets. Uh, In 2013, in fact, their GDP is expected to shrink by 1.3 percent and the year before it was something like almost 2%. So they're definitely feeling the pain of these sanctions, and that's really the only reason that they're interested in in entering into any negotiations. Uh, One concern for the U.S. is that uh, Iran does not cheat 
on this and sneak some centrifuges in here or there. And President Obama has assured us that this will involve what he called the most robust and intrusive inspections and transparency regime ever negotiated for any nuclear program, which sounds good, I suppose. Um, But still, there's a lot of concern that essentially what's going to happen here is that Iran is going to agree to this. And again, this is just a framework right now. The details still have to be worked out uh, by sometime this summer. And of course, that may present its own set of difficulties. But assuming the details get worked out, one of the big considerations is that uh, Iran will basically be able to somehow find a way to continue with their nuclear program on the sly while actually perhaps even being uh, helped in this with the sanctions being lifted and them having access to billions of dollars every month that they currently do not have access to. So that's absolutely an understandable concern. As one would expect, conservatives who hate essentially everything having to do with President Obama are not happy with this deal. Uh, The feeling seems to be that uh, President Obama, whose foreign policy could kindly almost be described as incoherent, disastrous is another word that comes to mind. That's not something I necessarily disagree with. Uh, President Obama is looking for some sort of foreign policy win, some sort of legacy, and this might be it. And the concern is that he has essentially given away too much. Uh, Ideally, we would want Iran to just not develop nuclear weapons at all, though I think that really isn't all that realistic. I know Jay disagrees with me on this. Jay just happens to be wrong here on this, as he so often is when he disagrees with me. But uh, I think John Kerry said it best. There's a phrase I never really thought I'd uh, mention. Uh, John Kerry said it best when he said, simply demanding that Iran capitulate makes a nice soundbite, but it's not a policy. And I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, This is not a great deal. Uh, Iran still retains much more capability than we would like them to have, and they still can rush to build a weapon in under this agreement. It would take them probably about a year, assuming the inspection regime is uh, a decent one. That's, you know, less time than ideally we'd like, but right now the estimates are that they could build a weapon in considerably less than a year. So if we can push that, what's it called, breakout time back, I think that's at least partially a win. Another good thing is that Iran is a big and important country in this region, and since 1979, we really essentially haven't had any relations with them at all. And I think if we've learned one thing in international relations, uh, let's hope we've learned a few more than that, but if we've learned one thing, it's that completely shutting out a country and just not talking to them until they capitulate and do everything we want them to do, that doesn't work. We've seen that in Cuba. We've seen that in North Korea. What works is opening up and trying to put together some sort of deal, some sort of way to get together and work with each other. And that's not easy. And both sides almost certainly come away with less than they would like. But that really is the only way forward. But many Republicans in Congress don't see it that way. Also, a number of conservative commentators would strongly disagree with that. There have been a number of suggestions made that this is very much like the 1938 Munich Agreement between Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler. Now, normally, of course, when conservatives talk about President Obama, they 
would compare him to Hitler because uh, they're so much alike, of course. But in this case, Obama is the feckless Neville Chamberlain in this analogy, and Hitler would be, you know, the Iranians because conservatives actually hate Iranians slightly more than they hate President Obama, just slightly more. So what can Congress do to stop this deal? Well, not necessarily a ton. Uh, right now, uh, President Obama has a lot of authority to remove or at least halt some of these sanctions temporarily through the Treasury Department. Uh, but what Congress could always do and what they're considering doing is passing legislation that would give them greater authority to stop sanctions or even impose new sanctions. In fact, uh, there's a bill that was introduced by Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee called the Bipartisan Nuclear, or sorry, Bipartisan Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015. And this would create a way for Congress to essentially block uh, the lifting of these sanctions. Of course, the problem with this is it would have to not only pass Congress, which there's a good chance that it could, but also it would have to have enough votes to survive the inevitable Obama veto. And that's, well, that might actually be kind of a close thing, but I don't think it's quite going to have the votes for that, actually. So in the end, is this a good deal? Uh, it's not a great deal. Uh, it's not awful. It's certainly better than nothing. Now, uh, uh, Israel would disagree with this. And, and forcefully has disagreed with this. And Saudi Arabia is not thrilled about this either. Why? Well, because they're the two other big powers in the region and they don't like the idea of uh, Iran getting off of its back economically. Uh, and I don't think they trust the Iranians. And, and frankly, I don't really either. So I think a lot's really going to depend on what sort of an inspection regime is put together. And if the Iranians allow inspectors in uh, and to get full and free access to sites. And of course, if that doesn't happen, then sanctions can always be reapplied. So again, not a perfect deal by any means, but absolutely far better than the status quo at present. Last week, Jay and I talked about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act law that uh, Indiana signed. Indiana signed? No, actually the governor signed it. The state did not actually sign anything. Anyway, um, this is what happens when you do a podcast all on your own or used to being able to toss it over to your co-host when you're fumbling around for words. Anyway, so this week, actually, there were some developments here because, of course, after that law was signed by Governor Mike Pence, there was quite a bit of uh, protest, both from uh, traditional sources, you would think, uh, Democrats, liberals, but also from uh, the Republican side, mostly the business community, who was very concerned that this sort of thing would send the wrong message and would be bad for business. And in fact, a number of businesses suggested that they would uh, – try to find ways to avoid Indiana, not have their conventions there, that sort of thing. And that's a well, potentially real concern. And so in response to this, on Thursday, uh, legislators in Indiana approved new legislation to uh, change, to modify, conservatives might say, water down the language in their Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. They wanted to make it clear that while they are still very much for religious freedom, who's not, uh, that they, these laws are not intended in any way and do not allow for discrimination. 
So what exactly do these laws do? Honestly, at this point, I don't have much of a clue, and I bet that there are a lot of people who feel the same way. So if they don't discriminate, but they allow religious freedom, does that mean if you are a, uh, say, pizza place and you don't want to cater a gay wedding, do you have to cater that gay wedding? Um, That's not entirely clear to me. Speaking of pizza places, actually, there was a pizza place uh, in Indiana that announced that they would not be catering gay weddings and uh, a place called Memories Pizza. And uh, they raised over $800,000 from presumably from conservatives uh, so that they could go on, I guess, making pizzas and not having to cater gay weddings. I didn't get the sense it was a real big issue for them, but just on the off chance that some gay wedding would really like uh, catering from Memories Pizza, that wasn't going to be in the card. So that's what a what a awful Awful disappointment. I'm sure that must have been to all the people planning gay weddings in whatever little out-of-the-way community that Memories Pizza exists in. Uh, We're all saddened by this, I think. Anyway, but I think the important thing about this is that it really brings up a pretty clear division in the Republican Party. I might hit on this a little bit last week, but it maybe bears repeating that, that division between the business Republicans, kind of old school Republicans, and the social conservative Republicans. I actually have a lot of sympathy for the business Republicans. I don't agree with them on all their issues, certainly, but uh, it's the social conservative Republicans that are clearly driving this. Uh, the business community doesn't really care who they sell to as long as they get to sell to gay, straight, whatever. Uh, it's the social conservatives that are that are driving this. And those are the Republicans that I have a, a real problem with. And I think a lot of people on sort of my side of the ideological aisle have a problem with. So what does this all mean in the end? I don't really think it means all that much. Actually, there's a long history of giving essentially some sort of symbolic legislation to uh, social conservatives to kind of keep them quiet, uh, that it doesn't necessarily amount to a whole lot in practice. That's sort of my sense. And actually, that was kind of what Jay said last week about this legislation, saying that in reality, he didn't think it would have much effect. Uh, he didn't think it was bad public policy. He said it was redundant public policy, which I argued would be bad public policy. My position is a little different. I think anything that suggests that discrimination is okay, and I still maintain that this does suggest that, is bad public policy. And so I'm only thankful that it doesn't seem like it will have that great of a real-world effect. There are exciting's going on. Exciting's going on. That can't be right. How about exciting goings on? Yes. In the Senate, where this week, New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez was indicted on bribery charges. Uh, more specifically, they charged him with uh, one count of conspiracy, one count of violating the Travel Act, eight, count them, eight counts of bribery, and three counts of something called honest services fraud. Uh, and uh, on top of that, kind of the cherry on top, account of making false statements. This is kind of a big deal because it's the first federal bribery charges against a sitting senator in uh, many years, I think in more than a generation, actually. And he he's facing a number of years in prison for these. So what's this all about? Well, it's all about uh, Menendez's good buddy, Dr. Solomon Melgan. 
who's an eye surgeon in Florida. Not only is he an eye surgeon, he is sort of the eye surgeon. This guy is the number one Medicare biller in the country, at least as of 2012. He billed $21 million to Medicare. Very impressive. So he's a big deal. And Menendez has been very, very interested in helping him out in a lot of ways. Uh, for instance, uh, Melgan, who's I think in his early 60s, has a number of uh, young girlfriends in various out-of-the-way places, Brazil, Ukraine, to name a few. Uh, Menendez's office has helped to get them visas so they could come into the country. And uh, Melgan, who is also married, I believe, could have, I guess, uh, more assignations with them without racking up those frequent flyer miles. So that's good of him. Uh, In addition to this, there were a number of other favors that uh, uh, Menendez did for Melgan, at least alleged favors. Uh, in return for this, well, why did Menendez do this? Because he thought Melgan's a wonderful guy. Sure, I imagine that's part of it. They are longtime friends. Uh, but Melgan uh, was able to send oh, around $700,000 in uh, not to directly to Menendez's reelection fund because, of course, that would be illegal. Under federal law, you can only donate up to $2,600 to a campaign. Um, so how can you get, if you want to get more than $2,600 into someone's campaign? Because honestly, $2,600 doesn't buy you that much anymore. What do you do? You set up a super PAC. You donate a whole bunch of money to a super PAC, and you tell that super PAC, spend this money to get, say, Senator Menendez reelected. And that's perfectly illegal as long as that super PAC does not directly coordinate with the campaign. So the super PAC can't call up Senator Menendez's office and say, how would you like us to spend this money? Uh, What kind of ads would you like us to run? That sort of thing. Now, if you're a conscious human entity with an IQ above room temperature, you're thinking, well, how is that possible to enforce that sort of law? That's an excellent question. It's not. Of course, uh, cheating is, uh, you can bet rampant on this. And so you might ask a second question, then why is there such a big loophole in this law? Well, the reason why is because this law is passed by Congress. And who gets all the campaign money uh, indirectly through this law? Congress does. A third question you might ask yourself is, well, isn't this essentially buying votes? Isn't this corrupt? And if so, shouldn't somebody do something to stop it? Well, there have been attempts to do that, laws to try to limit the influence of this indirect campaign finance money. But the Supreme Court, at least five justices on the Supreme Court, have decided that, no, actually, as long as there's no direct, as as long as you can't prove any direct connection, that this is perfectly okay, it's not corruption. Is the Supreme Court wrong on this? Of course the Supreme Court's wrong on this. They're dead wrong on this. Now, I'm sure Jay would disagree with me, and he would point out the First Amendment is intended to protect political speech, and I would agree with him on that, absolutely. The problem is, is when you have a system where somebody like uh, Solomon Melgan can spend $700,000, and I can spend, I don't know, I guess I could maybe give a couple hundred dollars to a campaign, if both of those things are speech, 
Who has more speech? Well, pretty clearly, I have a lot less speech, and Salman Melgan has a whole lot more speech, and that, to a lot of people, seems inherently wrong and inherently corrupting. And are those people right? Of course they are. Is is Senator Menendez corrupt? Of course he is. Will he go to jail? I, I don't necessarily think so. But this is a symptom of not just a bad guy in Senator Menendez, but a totally broken system. And will the system be fixed? No, not really likely. Number one, campaign finance is super complex and people just don't understand it. And secondly, who would fix it? Well, the people who are benefiting from this system. So is it going to happen absent some major cataclysm? No. Best we can hope for is that Menendez ends up in jail and at least we take out one particularly corrupt senator, or sorry, allegedly particularly corrupt senator. Finally, I want to make a brief mention of McDonald's, which is in the news this week because it decided to raise workers' pay to at least $1 an hour over the local minimum wage, which that sounds like a pretty good thing. Uh, You might think, well, McDonald's is responding to what Walmart did uh, earlier this year in raising the wages of their workers. Mm, Sort of, but not quite. For one thing, this decision only applies to the uh, employees at the 1,500 corporate-run McDonald's. Now, most of McDonald's are not run by corporate headquarters. Uh, They're uh, like somewhere around 12,500 franchises as opposed to 1,500 that are run by corporate headquarters. The franchises set their own policies on this. So essentially, it boils down to this covers around 12% of the workforce of McDonald's. So not as big of a deal as you initially might think. But still, you say, well, McDonald's is stepping up doing the right thing. Yay, McDonald's, putting aside their just awful, horrible, death-inducing food, another issue entirely. But there's another reason behind this potentially, and that's that McDonald's is quite possibly trying to uh, strengthen an argument that it is not responsible for pay and other labor practices at its franchises. Um, Why would they do this? Well, uh, last year there was a complaint before the uh, uh, National Labor Relations Board that uh, essentially argued that McDonald's had so much control over its franchises that it was, in effect, a joint employer of the workers at these franchises, and that would potentially mean joint liability. Well, McDonald's doesn't want that. They don't want to be responsible for these workers. And so uh, they're trying to do whatever they can to make this distinction between McDonald's-owned restaurants and franchisee-owned restaurants. So what they do essentially is to just make all kinds of very specific rules about how franchises can operate, what they can do, charge them super heavy fees. And then since the fees are so high, well, what are the franchise owners going to do? They're going to crank down on one of their biggest single expenses, and that is labor costs. And then when people say to McDonald's, how come your people don't pay, don't make that much? They say, well, hey, it's not our fault. Talk to the franchise operators. They are independent business people. So McDonald's sort of trying to I wouldn't necessarily call it a cover-up, but it is certainly not the corporate largesse and care for the little guy that McDonald's is so famous for, well, not really, I think, showing. So, well, I guess that's, you now. certainly this is a good thing for the people who are going to get a little bit of a bump in pay. Let's not uh, get crazy and decide that McDonald's is somehow this wonderfully corporate responsible type of corporation that's uh, certainly, I think, somewhat far-fetched.
Well, it looks like I've managed to sort of stumble and bumble my way through around 20 minutes or so of this uh, solo uh, mini-sode. Mini-sode? No, I didn't actually say that word, did I? Unfortunately, yes, I did, and I will keep it in just as a reminder to myself to never use that word again. Anyway, that is it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And my apologies again for those of you who are hoping to get some sort of dialogue between myself and Jay, and instead you got this. If you are if you are hanging around still at this point, you are either a glutton for punishment or actually it didn't turn out quite as badly as I thought. Um, that probably is somewhat unlikely. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. You can also follow us throughout the week on the Politics Guys blog, which you can find at our website, politicsguys.com. Uh, as well as you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is Politics Guys. And I uh, post uh, tweets throughout the week, and we have stuff on the blog throughout the week. Uh, so please check that out. We'll be back next Sunday. That's both me and Jay. Yay. With another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.